Chapter Two of An Eye for an Eye by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Two, The Penny in Paper. About twenty minutes elapsed before Patterson rejoined me, but expressing a fear that we might be overheard there, we went forth together and strolled along High Street until coming to a quiet turning which i think led past the workhouse we strolled along it and there he commenced his explanation the fact is he said in a nervous hushed voice there's been a most extraordinary occurrence here to-night the mystery is the strangest in all my experience and i've made inquiries into one or two in my time as you know tell me all about it i said my curiosity whetted i wish i could my dear fellow he answered I mean, tell me all the known facts. Nothing is known, save for the discovery, he replied. As soon as it became known, I wired to you. When the papers get hold of it, it will make the greatest sensation ever known in London. Well, that's saying a good deal, I remarked. Who made the discovery? I did, he answered, adding quickly. But don't mention me, or the superintendent may suspect me of giving you information. He already has a suspicion that I'm a bit too friendly with you gentlemen of the press. A contravention of the commissioner's orders against giving information to the papers might get me carpeted up at the yard, you know. And the discovery, I asked impatiently, what's its nature? Most astounding, he replied with a bewildered look. I'm a police officer, Irwin, he added hoarsely, and I'm not often unnerved. But tonight, by Jove, I'm upset, altogether upset. The whole affair is so devilish uncanny and unnatural. Well, tell me the story, I urged. If it is so strange the evening papers will have a good time tomorrow. No, no, he cried in quick alarm. You must publish nothing yet, nothing. You understand that I give you these facts only on condition that you promise not to publish anything until I give you permission. You alone will know of it. We must preserve the utmost secrecy. Not a word must leak out yet. You understand in what an awkward position you would place me were you to publish anything of this affair? Of course, I promise to keep the matter a strict secret, I answered. There are many cases in which the publication of the details of a crime might defeat the efforts of the police, and this I suppose to be one of them. Well, he said, I made the discovery in a most curious manner. Just before seven o'clock this evening, just as it was growing dark, I was returning to the station after visiting the fixed point at the corner of Earl's Court Road. You know the spot, just opposite Holland Park. I nodded. I knew that particular street corner where Earl's Court Road joined Kensington Road quite well. I had previously been my usual round through Campton Hill Road and Holland Walk, and was strolling back along the main Kensington Road, past that terrace of houses, Upper Phillimore Place, when my attention was suddenly arrested by seeing on the steps, leading from the pavement up to the front garden of one of the houses, a small object moving. It was inside the gate, and in a dim half-light I bent to examine it. What do you think it was? Don't know, I replied. Don't ask riddles. Describe facts. Well, it was the very last thing one would dream of finding on a London doorstep. A small, strangely marked snake. A snake? I echoed. You didn't arrest it for being found without visible means of subsistence, I suppose. No, he answered, controlling the smile which played about his lips. But the thing's too serious for joking as you'll realize when I told you all. Well, the squirming reptile, as soon as it saw me, coiled itself round, and with head erect and swelled, commenced hissing viciously. 
I saw that there was considerable danger in a thing like that being at large, and surmising that it had escaped from the house, having been kept in captivity by somebody fond of such pets, I opened the gate, passed it not, however, without it making a dart at me, and walking up to the door rang the bell. The house was in total darkness, but daylight had only just faded, and in many of the houses in the same terrace the gas in the hall had not yet been lit. I rang and rang, but there was no response. In a large house of that character it seemed strange that no servant was about. Indeed, most of the houses there, large, roomy, and old-fashioned, let furnished apartments, but this one seemed to be superior to its neighbors, inasmuch as it has a balcony on the first floor, and the small front garden is well kept in comparison to the patches of bald, weedy grass with which the others are content. As I stood on the doorstep trying to arouse the inmates, I watched the reptile squirming about the paved path, apparently enjoying its liberty immensely. I placed my ear attentively at the door, trying to detect some sound of movement, but failed until suddenly I heard within the ringing of an electric bell, subdued by reason of the closed door. It was certain that, after all, some one was within. "'Was your summons answered?' I asked eagerly. "'No. I rang fully a dozen times, but nobody came. It occurred to me that within might be an invalid, and that hearing my ring he or she had rung the bell to the kitchen, but the servants were absent. There was an area door, so I descended and tried that. The handle yielded. It was unlocked. Therefore I pushed it open and went in, though I was certainly not prepared for the discovery I afterwards made. As I entered the electric bell commenced ringing again, but it was apparently above me on the ground floor and not in the kitchen where I stood. In the cooking stove the fire was dying out, and there were other signs that servants had been around recently. Finding no one in the basement I ascended to the first floor when there greeted my nostrils a most delicious fragrance very similar to the incense which the Roman Catholics burned. The place smelt like the Brompton Oratory. "'Well, what did you do next?' I asked, excited at his extraordinary narrative. I searched the two big rooms, a dining-room and a back sitting-room, on the ground floor, but finding no one I stood at the bottom of the stairs and shouted, thinking to discover the whereabouts of the invalid who had rung the bell. There was no answer. The place was dark, so I struck a match, ascended to the first floor and entered the front room, which proved to be a good-sized, well-furnished drawing-room, dimly lit by the street-lamp opposite shining through the windows. At the further end, suspended from the ceiling, a curious lamp was burning in red glass, just like those one sees in Roman Catholic churches, and on examining it I found it to be a little float in oil, so arranged that it would burn continuously for many days and nights without attention. It looked strange and weird, a red spot in the darkness at the end of the room. But what was stranger and more amazing was a discovery I made a moment later, when, my eyes having grown used to the semi-obscurity of the room, I discerned two human forms, one that of a woman lying back in an armchair as if asleep, and the other a man who had fallen close by and was lying outstretched upon the carpet. Even the faint light of the match I struck told me that both were dead, and so startled was I by this unexpected revelation that with scarcely a second glance round the weird place I hastened downstairs and left by the front door. "'You went on to the station at once, I suppose?' "'Yes,' he answered, and then, after a pause, he looked straight into my face, adding, 
But to tell you the truth, Irwin, you and I are the only persons who know of this affair. I haven't reported it. Haven't reported it? I echoed. Why not? Delay may prevent the mystery being unraveled. I know it's absurd and foolish, he faltered in an unsteady voice. But the fact is, I entertain a deep-rooted superstition about snakes. My poor wife was always dreaming of snakes before she died. And strangely enough, whenever I have seen those reptiles in my dreams, some bad luck, catastrophe, or bereavement has always fallen upon me immediately afterwards. It isn't like you to speak thus, Patterson, I said, knowing him to be a fearless man who more than once had boldly faced a burglar's revolver. I really don't know what to do, he said. It's nearly two hours ago since I entered the place. I was so upset when I came out that I went to the telegraph office and wired to you in the hope that you might be able to suggest some plan of action. Report at once and let's thoroughly investigate it, I said promptly. No, I can't report it on account of that snake. If I did, I feel assured that some fatality would fall upon me. You're unnerved by what you've seen, I said. It certainly was not a nice position to unexpectedly find oneself alone with the dead in a dark, deserted house like that. In any case, however, the matter is a queer one and must be sifted. Yes, he said, it appears to be a most remarkable affair. Well, I exclaimed, if you are determined not to report it just at present, I'm ready to go with you and search the place. The area door is still unlocked, you say? He hesitated, pale and agitated. The effect of this discovery upon him had been really remarkable. Yes, the door is still unlocked, of course, he said reflectively. But personally, I don't care about returning. Rubbish, my dear chap, I exclaimed. I don't believe in superstitions. The finding of the snake was curious, no doubt. But this isn't the first time snakes have been found in the streets of London. Lots have been discovered about Covent Garden Market, having come over in baskets of fruit. He was silent. Evidently his discovery had been a very unusual one. I know well the row of houses he had indicated, the most old-fashioned perhaps in the district, for they had formed a part of the old Kensington over a century ago, and even now the great iron extinguishers ornamented some of the doorways, mute remembrancers of the days of sedan chairs and Lincoln. Let's go and explore the place and report afterwards, I urged, my appetite for adventure whetted by his strong disinclination to return. I'll report it as a discovery of my own, if you are disinclined to do so. Very well, he answered at last. Let's go. But before we enter, I tell you that it is a very mysterious house. Recollect that strange ringing I heard. We'll look into all that later on, I said, surprised at his unusual agitation. There, facing one of the busiest thoroughfares of the West End, little harm surely could come to us. Come along, I said, and thus persuaded, he quickened his footsteps. We passed along Abingdon Villas into Earl's Court Road, where, meeting a constable on duty, he borrowed his lamp. Then, turning into the Kensington Road, we at length reached the house of mystery, which, as he had said, was a gloomy-looking place, in total darkness. We peered eagerly inside the gate, but could distinguish no sign of the reptile which had so strangely attracted my friend's attention in the first instance. It was no doubt withdrawn among the plants and shrubs in the little smoke-dried garden, and was watching us unseen. Without hesitation, in order not to attract the curiosity of any passer-by whose attention might be arrested by Patterson's uniform, we walked straight to the area door, and, gaining the kitchen, at once lit the gas. 
as he had said there was every sign that the place had been recently occupied but with only a cursory examination of the basement we passed upstairs to the dining-room here we also lit the gas and saw that the table had been laid for three persons in a manner quite luxurious with real silver cut glass and tiny vases of fresh flowers arranged artistically beside each plate were blue glass finger bowls filled with water which gave out a strong perfume of roses the chairs had been placed the hors d'oeuvres olives anchovies and caviar were already on the table showing that all preparations for dinner had been made yet strangely enough in the kitchen the greater part of the meat and vegetables remained uncooked from this room we passed into the smaller one adjoining lighting the gas as we went but this seemed to have been used as a smoking-room and contained nothing of note it was however in the drawing-room above where we made the most astounding discoveries the apartment was spacious for the size of the house upholstered in pale blue with furniture of expensive character and large growing palms planted on stands in the centre was a great circular settee and in the corners wide soft divans of pale blue velvet with golden fringe comfort and luxury had been studied by whoever had furnished the place for as we lit one of the side gas brackets we saw that it was really a very artistic room the floor covered with a real turkey carpet of softest hues while the few paintings on the walls were choice examples of well-known artists at the end opposite the grate was suspended from the ceiling by three gilt chains the mysterious little red lamp burning steadily without a flicker and beneath it fallen back in a large armchair was a woman whose face although waxen white was eminently beautiful the paleness of death was upon her yet her handsome head with its wealth of gold-brown hair was pillowed upon the cushion of yellow silk and upon the cold slightly parted lips there played a strange bitter smile she was young twenty or so dressed in an artistically made gown of pale mauve trimmed with lace her teeth were even and perfect her cheeks round and well moulded her chin slightly protruding and a piquant little nose but that smile and death seemed revolting in its hideousness her eyes large of a deep blue once luminous as stars no doubt but now dull and filmy were wide open as though gazing out upon us in an endeavour to speak and tell us the truth of the strange and tragic occurrence i looked upon her bewildered dumbfounded not three yards away stretched at her feet was a man of about thirty-five well dressed in a frock coat and light-coloured trousers with collar and cravat of the latest mode and wearing on his cold stiff hand a ring set with a single diamond of unusual lustre his face was towards the carpet and while i held the lamp patterson bent and turned him over we then saw that he was dark and good-looking a gentleman evidently although from the upward curl of his moustache and his smartness of attire he appeared to be something of a fop it looks a good deal like murder and suicide patterson exclaimed still bending over him i wonder who he is there's initials on his sleeve links i said for i had detected an engraved cipher upon the plain gold buttons at his wrist there two k's intertwined surmounted by a crest my companion said in a strange voice i wonder what's on him and he proceeded to search the breast-pocket of the dead man's coat the contents which we afterwards examined together consisted only of two prospectuses of new companies an amber cigar tube mounted in gold and the envelope of a letter addressed in woman's hand to george grove poste restante 
Charing Cross, and bearing the Manchester postmark of three days before. The letter had unfortunately been destroyed. Only the envelope remained. But we both recollected that persons who have letters addressed to the Costa Restante do not usually give their correct names. In one of the vest pockets were three ten-pound notes folded carelessly together, while in the trousers' pockets was a quantity of loose silver. Beyond that there was nothing else upon him. Contrary to the effect of death upon his unfortunate companion, his face was slightly distorted, the tip of the tongue protruding, and both hands clenched, showing that he had endured a momentary spasm of agony as the last spark of life died out, while from the fact that a small tripod table with painted plate-glass top had been overturned and broken it seemed apparent that he had staggered and clutched wildly at the first object within his reach. But on neither could we detect any wound, nor was there anything to show the cause of death. I examined the hand of the woman, a tiny, slim, cold hand, the contact of which thrilled me by its chilliness, and saw that her rings, set with emeralds, rubies, and diamonds, were of the finest quality. "'She's beautiful,' Patterson observed, gazing down upon her. "'Perhaps she was his wife.' "'Perhaps,' I said. "'Curious that they should both have died together, in this manner. They were evidently sitting here chatting before dinner, when both were either murdered or died suddenly before assistance could reach them. She died before he did.' "'What makes you think that?' I asked quickly, my eyes wandering around the large, comfortable room, the atmosphere of which was heavy with fragrant odors. "'Because he placed that cushion beneath her head,' answered the shrewd, observant police officer. He had kissed her, and she was in the act of smiling at his last act of love when her heart suddenly failed and soul and body parted. "'And he died immediately afterwards, you think?' "'Yes, that's what I surmise. What's your opinion?' "'I can form no theory at present,' I answered, bewildered. In the course of years spent in the investigation of crime for journalistic purposes I had had my wits sharpened, and rather prided myself upon the soundness of the theories I propounded in the articles I wrote. Patterson knew this, and probably for that reason had invoked my companionship in this curious affair. Together we made a searching examination of the whole room, but there was absolutely nothing to show the motive, or even the mode of the tragedy. The absence of servants was, of course, extremely suspicious, but neither of us attached much importance to that. A close examination of the scene was our present object, experience having thought that upon the scene of most crimes there remains some trace of the assassin. The old saying that murder will out is truer than the majority of people believe, for even that night we had had a striking illustration in Patterson's attention being attracted by the snake in the gateway. Beside the dead woman's chair was lying a handkerchief, a tiny square of lawn and lace, which I picked up. It emitted an odor, very sweet and subtle, such as I had never before smelt. Patterson sniffed it, but placed it down. Some new scent, he said. Women are always going in for the latest inventions in perfumes. But this is an extraordinary one, I said, again smelling it. Terribly strong, too, I added, for the odor had a strange half-intoxicating effect upon me. The small red light steadily burning, the fragrance of the incense, the two dead forms lying there, still and cold, and the single gas burner hissing as it flared combined to present a weird, lurid picture, each detail of which has ever since been indelibly photographed upon my memory. 
the smile of death upon that woman's lips was horrible that look of hers has ever since haunted me for now that i know the truth and have realized all that had taken place in that room prior to the tragedy that laugh of derision has a significance which renders its recollection bitter gruesome hideous i know not what prompted me at that moment but bending again beside the prostrate man i placed my hand inside his vest recollecting that sometimes tailors adopting the french mode made pockets there and that therein many men carried articles of value in secrecy and safety as i did so i felt that there was a pocket in the lining that it was buttoned and that there was something within quickly i unbuttoned it and drew forth a small packet wrapped in glazed writing paper dirty and worn through being carried for a long time with care i opened it and inside found an object which caused both of us to give vent to an ejaculation of wonder it was simply a penny his mascot i suppose remarked the inspector a lucky coin but it has no hole through it i observed the hole is of no importance the coin may have been given him for luck replied my companion lots of people believe in such things especially betting men he was evidently very careful of it i said at the same time searching and finding another pocket on the other side of the vest and from this i took a neat little cloth-covered case not much larger than those containing cigarette tubes and found on opening it that it contained a small hypodermic syringe complete with its needles and accessories this shows that he was addicted to the morphia habit i remarked an overdose perhaps my friend who had now recovered something of his coolness and self-possession took the tiny instrument and examined it carefully beneath the gaslight there's been no morphia in this lately he said it's quite dry and certainly hasn't been used to-day let's search the whole house i suggested we may find something which will give us a clue as to who and what these people were funny that the servants don't come back isn't it i don't expect they will answered patterson depend upon it that there's more mystery in this affair than we at present suspect why look at these he said passing over to me the three banknotes found upon the dead man they are spurious no second glance was needed to convince me that he spoke the truth they were clever imitations of ten-pound notes but the paper the despair of the forger was thick and entirely different to that of the genuine banknote again i glanced at that beautiful woman's face with a smile of mingled ecstatic pleasure and bitterness her sightless eyes seemed fixed upon me following me as i moved i drew back horrified shuddering her gaze was ghastly it certainly is a most mysterious affair i ejaculated again glancing around the place you ought at once to report it no cried my companion quickly the discovery must be yours you must report it mr irwin why because as i've already told you i fear to do so on account of the snake i smiled at his curious objection but an instant later grew serious because of the sharp and sudden ringing of an electric bell somewhere on the ground floor it was the bell my companion had heard when first knocking at the door we both listened for a few moments while the ringing continued until with sudden resolve i dashed downstairs to ascertain where the bell was without difficulty i found it for there in the hall revealed by the gas lamps we had lit was a telephone instrument with its bell agitated violently without a second's delay i placed the receiver to my ear and gave the usual signal hello hello the whir and clicking stopped 
and a voice, squeaky as that of an elderly person, said petulantly, "'I've been ringing up for an hour or more. What's wrong that you haven't replied? You're at fifty-eight, aren't you?' "'Yes,' I answered, recollecting that fifty-eight was the number of that house. "'Nothing is wrong. Why? Can't you be patient?' "'I felt uneasy,' answered the mysterious voice apologetically. "'I thought there might possibly have been some hitch, as you haven't rung up.' "'No,' I responded, "'none.' then of course it's all over inquired the voice i started at this strange query this unknown inquirer was evidently in possession of the truth and believed himself to be talking to an accomplice he knew of the commission of the crime therefore it occurred to me that by the exercise of due caution i might be able to discover his identity yes i answered breathless in excitement both asked the voice both i responded good then I shall see you at the place we arranged, eh?' "'Of course,' I answered. "'But when? I've forgotten.' "'Forgotten?' echoed the squeaky voice in a tone of undisguised disgust. "'Take care or you'll blunder yet. You're a confounded idiot. Why, tomorrow at midday!' "'I know I'm a fool,' I replied. "'But in the excitement it's quite slipped my memory where you said I was to meet you.' Then, holding the receiver tremblingly to my ear, I listened with quick heart-beating for the response of that mysterious far-distant voice which squeaked so strangely, sounding thin and high-pitched, more like that of a woman than of a man. "'You're a confounded fool to waste time like this if you're still at fifty-eight, said the voice. "'You said so before,' I responded. "'But where shall I meet you?' End of chapter 2 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com